In this episode of The Full Nerd, AMD Talks CES. Welcome to a special episode of The Full Nerd. I'm your host, Gordon Mong, with co-host Brad Charkis. Hello, Internet. And very special guest, Frank Azor. Hello, everyone. And Robert Halleck. Hey, what's up, y'all? Both of them, of course, with AMD and Adam Patrick Murray is, of course, controlling the vertical and horizontal. It's uh, we're, we're here. We're live. CES has not destroyed us yet. Uh, thank you to Robert <laughs> and Frank for uh, for joining us. We're, we're here to talk some some announcements. There was some big news, right? Yeah, we're very happy. A to little. Be here, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having mm-hmm. us. Yeah, I, I and, you know, again, uh, if you're catching the stream, Robert has he's going to pop out of top of the hour. He's at the top of the hour he has some important stuff to do so i want to just get straight to it <sighs> my first question uh robert uh obviously ryzen 7 5800 x3d that's going to be your first mm-hmm. vcash part amd is touting it as the world's fastest gaming processor is it really going to be that <laughs> i truly believe so um, what we've seen from a characterization of, of gaming workloads is that uh, you know, mo- modern PC games are making a ton of random requests to memory. They are memory latency sensitive more than any other category of sensitivity. There's, of course, frequency sensitivity and core count sensitivity as well, but overwhelmingly fast memory access is what's making the performance difference for a lot of these modern PC games, especially ones uh, that are still developed on DirectX 9 or developed uh, to run on a wide range of hardware, like eSports titles. Um, So when you think about those fast memory accesses, and they happen so randomly because a game cannot predict what the user is doing. If they want a 360 no-scope, well, that can't be predicted the 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 textures the models the sounds the animations they just have to be there or get fetched and so if you can make a local pool of memory substantially larger than any other cpu that's ever been developed that memory access doesn't have to go to ram anymore it goes to the cpu instead and it's making a massive difference in the performance of pc games Uh, we're seeing uplifts of 20 30 40 percent in PC titles versus the non-3D stacked cache version of essentially the same CPU. Uh, so yes, we're absolutely convinced we do have the fastest gaming chip out there. And uh, we built it with eight cores because people tell us they just want to want a game. They want the best CPU for gaming. So eight cores, ton of cache. It's a match made in heaven. It's a great chip. Uh, of course, that was the, the reaction from the people who like to pay for Ryzen 9 or like, wait, I want Vcash 2 on my 5900X and 5950X. Why not now? And and obviously, you can't talk about future products, but people are like, I want this. Can we get it, please? I think what you're seeing is, is on, on the business side or AMD maturing as a company side is we can start to explore, I guess you could call it out of band or... Uh, originally not roadmapped products that may be more specialized than the one-size-fits-all Ryzen products that people have seen before. We can offer a parallel opportunity, an alternative path for people. And the number one piece of feedback we get for our box processor business is, I just want to play a game. And most games are designed around uh, around six or eight cores because uh, that's where the consoles are targeted as well. So there's a lot of synergy for developers there. And you put a big block of cache on top of that and you run it around four and a half gigahertz and bingo, bango, you've got an extremely fast, predictable, consistent gaming CPU. And And so, you know, that may not be the core count for everyone, but it's probably the core count for most people. Makes sense. Um, and, uh, you know, the Ryzen, 50, uh, for, and for people who don't know, Vcash, of course, is a stack cache that's going on, on top of the existing uh, Ryzen 
X die essentially. Um, okay. I've noticed, you know, your clocks drop a little bit. You're, I think you lose about 200, 300 megahertz going from a, a, a non-stack part to the, the Vcash stack part. Is it because of the heat or just another binning issue? It's really the, the, the performance targeting of the part as we were modeling what these games are sensitive to. Uh, it's not frequency. And I'm not, I, I want to be very clear about this because this is a nuanced topic and this could easily be spun into a very bizarre headline. Frequency is important. Frequency is important. But every processor, every game is always a series of trade offs bottleneck mitigation and in in our architecture uh when you're in the range of four and a half to five gig four five is enough when you put a ton of memory on top you know you're not limited by frequency anymore you're not giving anything up to target that frequency it's the performance limiters or the performance accelerators moves up move elsewhere in the architecture so we can dial back on the frequency a bit ease up on the thermals, make it easier to cool, uh, and then drop in a big extra blob of cash on top, which is more transistor density, uh, more thermal density. And so that's a trade-off that was very easy for us to make. Yeah, I think the key thing, Robert, is the TDP of this part is still 105 watts, right? That's right. So that's right. there's some give and take that has to happen in order for us to fit within that envelope. And it is still overclockable, Right. Is unlock, yeah. Is it, and it's just, it's, and I think that is that is a good point to make. Is uh, everybody sort of assumes you always want to take everything to eleven on every single feature, but sure. there's there's legitimate engineering, logistics, and and business reasons for for not doing that for everything. So, uh, can we? You know, there's been some talk that adding the Vcash onto these parts is a significant cost adder. You obviously can't talk about what. Uh, the pricing is ahead of time. Uh, I'm going to guess it's going to be more. Do you want to give us any kind of hint to soften the blow yet, or just simply don't want to say anything because you don't want to get to work and find all your stuff in a box and security <laughs> security waiting uh, for you? Yeah, and and, and my uh, my seniors at AMB. No, the, the truth is um, I don't know the price yet, uh, and I think collectively as a company we don't know the price yet. Um, what I what I can say or do know is uh, there's lots of competing offerings out there within our own stack and from other blue companies, and we're very sensitive to the price performance of a part. That's something we model early and often uh, based on a variety of different workloads. So we're not, um, you know, we're not ignorant to what's going on for for pricing out there in the market, and when we make the, the final decision, whatever that ends up being, uh, we, we want to come in on the right side of history. Right. I was wondering just about cash in general. Uh, like it seems like cash is a big focus for AMD around. You guys had game cash. Now we have these 3D stack chips. Uh, Infinity cash is a big deal for the RDNA 2 GPUs. Uh, I was just kind of wondering what made you guys start moving in that direction? Like, sure. Uh, all of a sudden, it's popping up everywhere for you guys. Everywhere. Well, it's 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 one part engineering and and one part, frankly, one part marketing. Uh, on the engineering side, uh, what's true is that so many games now are moving to this very latency sensitive design, uh, and a great way to hide latency or or work around it is to simply make a memory pool larger. You've eliminated the time that the GPU has to go to frame buffer or the CPU has to go to the motherboard's RAM. And that can be a huge accelerator, a huge accelerator. So that's the engineering reason for it. And, and the marketing reason for it is that people have started to realize that there are non-frequency and non-core count reasons that certain processors or certain GPUs are faster than another. Uh, so the, the the user consciousness has has widened. Uh, so making sure we're continuing to invest in that, so people understand from just a, a conversational perspective that things other than frequency or cores can matter a lot, matter more than perhaps any other metric. Uh, that's an important effort for us as well to make sure people understand 
you know, what's going on architecturally, both in software and in, in graphics or, or processors. Uh, if, if I can piggyback off of, uh, the, the cash speak there, there's a couple of good questions from the chat. Uh, Ryan, uh, Dietz, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, asks how much of a latency penalty is there with the three DV cache versus normal L3 cache? Mm, it, it's a couple nanoseconds. Uh, anytime you make, that's a great question because anytime you make an L3 cache larger, uh, it does add slightly more seek time to find the first bit of memory. And that's true of any memory type. It could be RAM, it could be GPU memory, cache, whatever. So yes, uh, L3 cache latency does go up a few nanoseconds, but net net, the, you know, the, the, penalty if you will of that is vastly outweighed by the benefit of skipping ram altogether very often okay the the next question is from uh, lb why not use 3d cache for l3 only and use 2d cache to expand the l2 cache uh it, it comes down to the architecture of the chip uh so the reason why we want to do an l3 cache is because that's shared amongst all the cores you can never guarantee uh which core is going to, or let, let me take it from an application point of view. I'm an executable. I've spawned up X number of threads to run my game, maybe physics, audio, animation, whatever. Uh, I, as a CPU designer, cannot guarantee what core that uh, that workload will, will land on or that thread will land on. So if I put on L3 cache, more of that, that cache is shared amongst all the cores evenly within a die. Uh, so you know, it, now it doesn't really matter what core that particular thread lands on. I have that fast access all the time. Uh, geometrically, it also makes sense because on the Zen architecture, our L3 cache is right in the middle. You've got four cores on the left, big block of L3 cache, and then four cores on the right. So it's easy to put uh, that large chunk of cache right in the, the middle stacked, uh, stacked vertically. So it makes sense from a geometric and, and design perspective as well. Uh, so I have a question, you know, because, you know, a lot of it is very much about marketing and the value of seeing world's best gaming, you know, processor, you know, sure. check mark that that's a big deal is what's is that also what kind of drives the whole five gigahertz thing? Because everybody's got five gigahertz parts. Uh, everyone seems to have chips coming that can, that can also run at, at above five, at five gigahertz on all cores. Now all the, all the claims, which is more important, uh, five, all five gigahertz or world's best gaming CPU. Probably world's best. Uh, you know, this is an interesting, I, I could spend quite a while on this. Uh, the lightning round version is, uh, We've done a lot of consumer research on what is what is sticky with people when they see a, a letter or a number or a spec on the box. What moves the needle and what doesn't? Um, big round hole numbers like four zero, four five, five zero that moves the needle quite a lot in consumer preference. But something like five point one, five point two barely registers on the Richter scale. But then above that, it's use case relevance. You know, you've moved from spec to is this good for me and what I want to do. And so if you're looking for the best CAD CPU, best gaming, best software development, best compiling, that carries even more weight than a spec. And I think we've also seen maybe over the last two or three years in particular, a decline in general market focus on frequency. I think people are realizing that, for example, Ryzen can come to the table at 4.6 or 4.7 and credibly beat a CPU that might be running at 5.1, 5.2. And that's a 500 to 600 megahertz spread. How do you reconcile that? And the only answer is that maybe frequency doesn't always matter. Right. Uh, and then... Can I, I don't want to keep hogging you know, all the questions here. Go ahead. Go ahead. So it is interesting because, um, you know, we have Ryzen 7 5800 X3D. I mean, honestly, for gaming, sounds awesome. But it feels like the response from Intel is also 
it's sort of taking a page out of, of your book. I hate to use that term, but you know, AMD has been beating Intel's brain in for three or four years now with core count, thread count. Now they have Alder Lake uh, with their sort of you know uh, performance core e cores, but they they have a a a real uh, uh, thread count advantage, and they're basically beating AMD at the Cinebench game, frankly, which is a good way to look at it because that's that's what people care about. Any concerns that like people go like, oh my god, it's I get way more Cinebenches on the Alder Lake part going forward. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, we as vendors have used Cinebench uh, for a long time simply because it's an all right indicator that runs in a minute or two of, of single thread performance. But I'll take Zen 3 in particular as a, as a good example of why that can be deceptive. Um, if we had based the IPC increase of Zen 2 to Zen 3 uh, on Cinebench only, it would have been 9%. The number would have been 9%. But we know that the IPC increase across like 25 workloads was an average more like 19 or 20%. And games were 26 to 30%. And it's because IPC instructions per cycle really varies depending on the workload. And, and so it's important to take a more holistic view of what the core is doing. Uh, at a fixed frequency than just Cinebench. It's not that Cinebench doesn't matter or isn't important, but it can give a, a very limited perspective into what's going on. Um, and it can leave a lot on the table or it can, uh, it, it may not inform you of everything. So um, Cinebench will continue to run it, continue to share those numbers, but taking a wider view of what's going on, as you saw in, in Zen 2 and Zen 3 from us, is uh, going to be important as well. I was actually hoping you would both just sort of trade positions and Intel would say, oh, Cinebench is the best thing. You should all be running it. And AMD would say, oh, no, don't run Cinebench. But no, I I, I, I think we want to be realistic. I, you know, the, the, the fundamental engineering truth of benchmarks is that you have to run a bunch of them to get a complete picture. And especially when it comes to performance of one core. Because uh, you could have things that are more float sensitive and integer sensitive and memory sensitive, frequency sensitive. There's like so many variables that one benchmark cannot do it all. And, and so taking a, a more expansive view is, is important. And uh, Cinebench is one of many. Cool. I have, I have a question. Sure. Uh, so your chips are going to have Microsoft Pluton in them now going forward. You're all going to have the first chips have to work in with an Xbox. Uh, I don't think a lot of people really understand what Microsoft Pluton is. So could okay. you give a high-level view of that and explain some of the benefits why you guys are making this change? Sure. So uh, to start at the physical level, uh, for, for many years in, in the Zen era, we've had a, an on-chip security coprocessor called the AMD Secure Processor. That is a chip within a chip for us. Uh, Pluton is also a chip within a chip. So now we have two of them inside uh, the Ryzen 6000 series. Uh, Pluton is designed, um, it's a bit arcane, but the simplest way to explain it is that it provides uh, new attack vector mitigation as people move their data and their workloads into the cloud. There are certain physical access or software exploits that can be leveraged against the system to gain access to those cloud services, those cloud data, uh, that you need special security handling for, and that's what Pluton addresses. Uh, but, you know, going the next level down to explain, you know, what are those mitigations, what are those vectors that that's like collegiate this, uh, thesis yeah. level type stuff. But that's the basics, cloud cloud security. Are, are we going to see a little more transparency on what Pluton does? Because a lot of the pushback I've seen from people is, they just don't like things they can't control or don't know what they are. But sure. I would argue, of course, you if you gave it all away, then that just makes it open to more attack vectors. But I, I don't know how you sort of balance that. But I guess people would want to know, hopefully, more about what Pluton does exactly. And we will. Uh, you know, coming into the January February time frame, uh, we're working on a ton more information around the Ryzen Six Thousand series. We have. By no means said everything there is to say. We want 
to go deeper on the architecture, the new power management features, the new security features. And when that time rolls around, which, you know, is only a couple of weeks away, um, you know, we'll go into what kind of attack vectors we're talking about, how Pluton functions, that kind of stuff. That's definitely in the cards. We know people are curious. Okay, so we talked about Vcash, the improvement to games. That's obviously the focus with these stack chips. Uh, have you guys seen any improvements? Obviously, you haven't some, uh, like non-gaming applications. What is there any particular areas that you think the the extra Vcash and the 5800X 3D makes us? I'll level level with you guys in the consumer space. It's games, games, games. Um, you know, these work more traditional productivity workloads. Uh, or office type workloads. Office is like one core performance, two cores performance. Productivity stuff is just how many cores do you have? A little bit of frequency sensitivity on top, but those workloads are super predictable, which means they're not memory sensitive. They're not cache sensitive. So uh, we're not seeing outsized gains in the consumer space for uh, for larger cache. This is a uh, guide in the wool gaming part. And I know you you said this is just sort of like the best, makes them perfect fit for Vcash. I do wonder though on on Vcash, what would happen if you had a two CCD part? I mean, because now you have two separate L threes in a way. Sure. Does that make uh, a difference, you, or in your internal modeling? I guess uh, you might actually lose a little performance um, because uh, cash works best when it's symmetric. Uh, that is, the uh, sometimes contents are duplicated from cache A to cache B across dies, for example. Uh, so let's say you had an asymmetric uh, configuration where one die has a cache and the other doesn't. Um, you might have a thread over on die B that now has to fetch across to die A because die A has that larger cache pool and has data that die B doesn't. So that's a, a cost in time. Uh, that is an added latency. We're trying to remove latency. Uh, and then even then, let's say they're both symmetrical and you have two dies. Well, that could lead to a scenario where the data in each cache, even though they're the same size, they don't have the same data. And now you're exchanging back and forth. And that too is a latency difference. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of a, a pro and con of going to to multiple dies with mixed cache sizes. And, and that's one of the reasons we stay laser focused on on eight cores for this product. Uh, follow up question from the chat: Michael Sawyer asks, uh, "Could you put the cache over the I/O die instead of the chiplets?" You could, but you wouldn't want to, because uh, that that adds physical uh, wire distance to uh, to the cache access. You know, you want that cache right there, local, uh, running next to the cores. Um, for the fastest possible access time. And if you don't do that, then you're just uh, taking away from the benefit of, of 3D stack caching. Okay. Uh, and then we, we also had a, a sorry, one second, a, a $5 uh, super chat. Thank you so much from uh, Byron Goodman. Said uh, nice. uh, increasing cache doesn't necessarily increase performance. Compilers need to be tuned for locality. Are you working with developers to, to tune this? Uh, in, in this case, because uh, it's a single die, product and all cores simply have more cash available uh we're not you know there are no uh topology related uh cash locality issues it's simply a larger larger cash pool and you get very nice organic innate benefits from that that is transparent to both the os and the software running on it so short answer no no need to recompile for to get the performance advantage Uh, um well, go ahead. No, I was, I was just saying, you don't, you don't need to. I was going to, you know, I because honestly, I could keep talking about, uh, you know, the uh, X3D part for the next hour. But I, I, I want to ask about Ryzen 6000 because to me, I know all the desktop people want to talk about the, the Vcash part. But Ryzen 6000 is probably more significant for AMD in a lot of ways because laptops move mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of product. What can we expect out of Ryzen 6000? I mean, the uh, it looks like a pretty decent increase in performance. I mean, you, you were saying, I think your slides showed it as 28% on the U parts. 
That's right. Uh, so we've, we've done something interesting uh, with the 6000 series, and it all comes down to power management. Um, you know, we were kind of blessed with this Zen design. Uh, I think in general, uh, Zen is internally is not just the code name of a core. It's also a design philosophy for us uh, to make a an x86 microarchitecture that is physically more compact than other designs and is capable of scaling to lower power and higher performance within that one core than competing designs. So we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. And, and so what we did with the 6000 series is we really indexed on that thinking. We added 50 new power management, newer improved power management to the core itself. So it's just Zen 3 Plus. And we've added new power management features to the Infinity Fabric, memory controllers, display controllers, uh, Uncore. We've added new voltage planes, new firmware. And when you have that much more control over your power, it also means you have that much more control over your performance. So within that ultra-thin space, the U-series, we can now take the same Z-height, the same battery life, and go up to 28 watts now. And that'll give you like 30% more CPU compute, twice as much graphics performance, you know, 10 to 15% more single thread performance. And we're talking same Z-height, same battery life, same acoustics, same thermals. We can just squeeze so much more performance out of that SOC thanks to these new power management features and, you know, net increase on battery life too. So it's a, it's a huge development for us in the performance space. It's proof that, you know, you can get pretty huge gains uh, without making, you know, uh, particular IPC improvements. Sometimes it can come from power. It can just come from better power management. And there was no 28 watt U part previously. It was it's a that 15 watt TTP, and that's that's sort of I, I've heard people sort of accuse AMD is like, oh, you're you're this is a sleight of hand because you're comparing a a 28 watt 6800U versus a 15 watt uh, 5800U. But yeah. that that's a really good point. It's like you couldn't push the previous part uh, to the that's to right. the performance levels. Hmm. You just okay. couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Uh, and and that's that's an achievement we're proud of. We're we want to compare that 28 watt to 15 because last year 15 was the, the best you could do. Uh, there were vendors that did push that SOC a little harder into the 20 or 22 watt range, but the, the design was not optimized at those points. So you were increasing power, but getting diminishing returns in performance. But now we can go all the way to 28 and we've characterized it, built it, modeled it, and we get scaling all the way up. And so you can get a laptop that's as small as or smaller than last year with more CPU performance, more graphics performance, more battery life, uh, you know, better acoustics, better thermals. That, that's a huge technical achievement. And that, that's what we set out to do. Uh, I, I have a discussion point from uh, Dr. Ian Cutters of Tech Tech Potato, a uh, friend of the show. Hi, <laughs> he he says a uh, 28 watt versus 15 watt mobile benchmarking discuss <laughs> uh well the, the way we do it is uh we have either open air test benches in in a thermal chamber uh calibrated to a very specific temperature that would be like uh, the inside of a chassis or we have a test mule built to represent the sort of the average of the ultra thin category for the year. Um, and we just bench all things being equal. You know, we, we set up the power envelopes and the thermal designs exactly as they would be in a, um, you know, a shipping chassis for a customer and load the firmware image, load the OS, install the drivers and off to the races. Uh, I would try to keep it pretty simple. Although, you know, it really does, I mean, people love the chip nerd discussions, you know, um, on Reddit, you get into it, but it really does, there's always that odd disconnect because you don't buy a CPU and put it in your laptop. You buy a whole laptop, it's a whole sure. platform. And it looks like you have, I mean, you have, like, I think there were what, two AMD Advantage, maybe just one AMD original Advantage system, but now you're saying there's going to be 20. What, what was the the big reason for the uh, adoption this year? 
I think uh, for a longer period of time now, there's been a lot of confidence in rising CPUs, um, but it really wasn't even until CES 2020 that we start to see we started to see some mass adoption of rising CPUs in gaming systems. And uh, around that time, we were introducing RDNA one, and uh, I think there was a little bit less uh, confidence in RDNA um, than there was even with Ryzen, because Ryzen was further along in the journey, especially with the inroads that we had made on the desktop side with the three thousand launch. So there was um, initial hesitation from OEMs, very honestly, to uh, rapidly adopt Radeon-based uh, notebooks because we hadn't even been in notebooks in such a long time with the Radeon brand. So um, what we saw was in that first year, we had the Dell G5 15-inch come out, and uh, that was kind of like the first um, mainstream gaming A plus A, Ryzen and Radeon system that came to market. Uh, And then this past year in 2021, that one system turned into seven. We had uh, MSI launch several SKUs with us. We had uh, Lenovo launch, HP, and Asus ROG launched several systems with us. And they went so well. The, the experiences um, from customers, the feedback, not that they were perfect. We had a couple of hiccups here and there. We're very aware of them. And we've tried to resolve every problem since then with our OEM partners. But um, the response was so well received. The reviews were so good on the systems that uh, every one of those OEMs expanded their portfolio with us in 2022 and more OEMs have jumped on. And now they see that, you know, Ryzen and Radeon based uh, notebooks, they, they can succeed in market. Uh, Radeon is competing effectively on desktop and on notebook. And uh, they're, they're leading in a lot more with us now. So you'll be able to find well over 20 new advantage designs in market um, kind of sprinkling out throughout the year with the first ones hitting in, in February. I'm going to have a lot more questions about smart chips and laptops and whatnot. But before Robert leaves, I just want to ask, so the pins on the back of AMD CPUs are iconic, and you guys are, are going to be moving to LGA for you know Ryzen 7000. I was wondering if you could just talk about why you decided to make that change, because like I said, they're iconic. Yeah. Um, well, choosing LGA versus PGA is... Uh, it feels contentious to the public if you look at the chatter online, but it really comes down to uh, pin density. Uh, how many pins do you need on the bottom of the CPU to pin out the features that are in the chip? Uh, when you can do it with LGA, you just do it with LGA because you take on, or you do it with PGA, excuse me, uh, because you, the CPU manufacturer, can take on the complexity of of pinning pinning things out and that complexity is not on the motherboards you're not shifting the complexity to all the different motherboards in market but when you reach a certain limit maybe you're going to i don't know pci gen 5 ddr5 you've got more features well you need more pins now and uh, pga might not be the right choice anymore so we are switching to lga uh I believe it's 1,718 pins, LGA 1718. Um, and it's just density. You know, how, how much is in the chip and what do we need to put down on the board? We needed more pins. But all the existing coolers are still going to be compatible, you said, right? Exactly right. So uh, a lot have been said about the shape of the CPU lid. And those cutouts are, um, are, are making room for capacitors, surface-mounted capacitors that would have been on the underside of the CPU in, in a PGA equivalent part, but you need all the space you can get on the bottom of that chip. So I moved things up top and made those cutouts and that allowed us to keep the same package size as AM4. Uh, it's not pin compatible, but the CPUs are the same length with height. And that allows us to maintain cooler compatibility with, with socket AM4. Uh, and actually, I do have a question about the heat spreader. And for people who don't know, we're talking about the Zen 4 reveal. Um, it has those cutouts in it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, huh, are those actually, is it open access to the die? Am I going to fill that thing up with uh, thermal paste and short things out? Or or is it actually, a, is it sealed? You, you know, the, there's not just simply access to the inside of the chip, I guess. It, it's sealed, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to fill it up with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, those little grooves could fill up, you know, get get some nice little uh, residue <laughs> gunked up in there over time, though, right? Uh, hey, with a Q-tip and some rubbing alcohol, anything is possible. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's no fun. All right, so uh, with Redden 6000, uh, the move to RDNA 2 is obviously very exciting. Vega's been doing great for y'all in mobile space yeah. over the last few years, but the move to RDNA 2 looks great. Uh, and it requires so much more memory bandwidth that you guys also had to embrace DDR5 pretty much across the board, LP DDR5 as well. Uh, those have been very supply constrained in the DIY market. Are you guys worried about supply constraints on that front in the OEM market? Truth is, Brad, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't <laughs> deal with logistics or supply at AMB, so I, I couldn't All right. say. All right. Oh, I tried. Uh, here, uh, what I'd say is like anything that's brand new, especially in today's market, it takes a while for things to ramp up. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no guarantees and I'm not the last guy to talk about supply and availability, but we are seeing things ramp up quickly. People have been placing their orders for DDR5, securing their, uh, their supply, their incoming supply. Uh, so it, it's going to ramp up. It's a ramp up period. Like DDR4 was like every, every new technology transition is. So I do expect that there's going to be some hiccups, but it is getting significantly better with every passing month. And most supply has been locked up, forecasted orders have been placed now over six months ago, over nine months ago. And yep. 2022 is going to be the, the, really the, the year that it ramps. I, d- I do have a, another supply, uh, question, uh, mi- Milind Veer gave us a uh, four pound super chat. Thank you so much. Said it's hard to find Thanks. Ryzen laptops last year. Uh, is this trend going to continue on the laptop front? Uh, again, I'm, the, I'm not the great, uh, the best person to talk about availability of anything, and I won't take any bets on that. But um, what I'll tell you about last year is, is what I said a little bit earlier uh, in, in answering Gordon's question or Brad's question. Um, it was, uh, you know, very honestly there was skepticism around um, Radeon-based laptops last year. And with good reason, right? We hadn't been in the category for a very long time. So even though those OEM partners partnered with us and they leaned in with us and were extremely appreciative for it, um, I think uh, all of us, we really didn't anticipate how successful the demand for these laptops was going to be. And the forecasts are higher this year. The supply is going to be higher, the availability, the quantity of models, the regional availability of them, um, you know, retail and e-tail availability of them. We are exponentially increasing all of those plans and there should be better availability. But, you know, to, we haven't done this in so long. We haven't had Radeon high-performance gaming laptops in so long. To be very honest, we're not entirely sure how many of them we could sell yet. Like, you know, our competitors have a run rate of a decade plus and they kind of know, hey, if the market's going to go up 15, 20%, we're going to do X amount within that. There's a variance of, of, of uh, kind of margin of error there. We don't have that history right now. So until we build that with yesterday or last year being the foundation of that, this year will give us more intelligence. Um, we're not going to really know for sure how, how strong our supply availability is going to be on, on Radeon-based laptops. But it's a good problem to have, you know, um, we're very grateful for the support that the community has given us on these laptops. We're giving Radeon a chance in laptops. We've upped the ante with everything we launched at CES. I mean, there's like a huge smorgasbord of SKUs now from performance to uh, efficient SKUs with the, the new Slimline. Um, so we're doubling down on our investment. OEMs are doubling down with us. Um, we're going to do everything we can. Trust me, we want to manufacture and supply you guys. The last thing we want to do is not have supply for the demand that's out there. Uh, but we're learning as we go along. Can I ask uh, a couple questions for because we are getting close before uh, Robert turns into a pumpkin. Um, you know, clearly with Ryzen 6000, a lot has been done. For power optimization, uh, you're obviously getting way more performance out of it due to that. But I kind of look at the math of 14 core Alder Lake HP H and P series versus eight core Ryzen 6000s. I, you know, I can sort of see the math of who's going to win there. But I do wonder if the battle for 2022 might might actually end up being uh, battery life. You know, they they may 
they may give you a, a re, they may do really really well plugged into the wall but do you can you give us any sense like is Ryzen 6000 just going to like wow us with battery life because of these efficiencies you built into it uh, we believe that with our six nanometer process and the Zen 3 plus core we have uh, a significant battery life advantage uh, particularly in ultra thin laptops um, and you know as far as consumer carabouts go performance battery life are like equal carabouts in in that market so uh, i think it'll be a real real dogfight on performance uh i think we're gonna uh have a, a, a wonderful time in graphics performance um battery life is going to be uh i think our domain um but it'll be an exciting 2022 a competitive uh 2022 but uh very, very confident in where our performance versus power is sitting on Zen 3 Plus. So a lot of talk about battery life for Ryzen 6000 has revolved around the power optimizations in the Ryzen chips, obviously. Uh, yep. But you guys are also moving to RDNA 2. Is that part of the equation as well? Does that factor into that? Certainly. Uh, you know, the RDNA 2, RDNA as a family uh, scales incredibly well to low power and so did vega the amount of performance we're able to extract out of each generation of vega uh, you know as we move to seven nanometer from the larger nodes uh, going down into 15 watt tdp on uh, apus rdna is that times a thousand like rdna skills so well to low power so you can um, extract so much performance out of it at a lower average power than the previous architecture. So that helps as well dial in, you know, exactly the right performance level for, for a given, a given battery life. Um, and, and there's, it, you know, it's not just RDNA shrunk down and placed in, in the APU either. Uh, there's new sleep states and power management features for this implementation in particular that we'll talk about uh, in the weeks ahead. And so we've really left no stone unturned here when it comes to power management inside the SOC. Cool. Uh, I'm going to try to squeeze one last question in because I think we got two it. minutes for Robert has to go. Uh, big move from Ryzen uh, 5000 mobile to Ryzen 6000 is you're, you're adopting PCIe 4. Uh, wasn't yep. in the original part. I'm kind of interested in the PCIe lane mix. Um, you're basically, it's it's 8 for the GPU, Gen 4, and then yep. you have 12 for storage and another plumbing. Can you, what was the reason for not giving full uh, 16 lanes to the GPU for the H parts? Oh, man, that feels like a perennial question. Uh, you know, the truth is that uh, 8 lanes is more than enough for GPUs. Even the biggest, fastest highest end, highest performance. When you're talking gaming, eight lanes is enough, especially eight lanes of Gen 4 or 16 lanes of Gen 3, which are equivalent. Um, so when we think about balancing die size, cost, power consumption, complexity, performance, there's a very clear pull towards eight lanes because it doesn't sacrifice anything in performance, but shrinks down the die size, shrinks down the power envelope, increases battery life, reduces complexity, reduces cost. That's a clear tip of the scale there. And not just on the chip itself, but for the entire platform as That's well, right. right? The whole motherboard ends up being simpler. You don't have to route all those lanes. You get to save money. Um, there's point. benefits for the entire solution. So it actually, it's one of those things where had you made that investment, you'd get no uplift for it, virtually no uplift. And ultimately, at the end of the day, all that cost trickles down to the end user. So they would have been paying for something that they wouldn't have benefited from. And I just want to note that uh, eight lanes of Gen 4 is the equivalent of 16 lanes of Gen 3. So for people who don't know that math. So um, although I, I think that's it, it's the top of the hour. Robert has to go. We do get Frank for a few more minutes, though. So thanks for coming by, Robert. Oh, guys, always appreciate it. Love coming on the show. We should do it again uh, for the five nanometer stuff coming a little later in the year. I think it'll be I'm, fun. May 5th. I'm, I'm pushing May 5th. <laughs> May 5th, five o'clock. I'll give him all the details. Five. Robert, don't worry. I'll yes. give him all the details after you hang up. Sounds right. great, man. Appreciate it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Robert. Thanks.
to to start off with Frank, uh, I, I do have a a good question from uh, Dr. Ian Cutris. Uh, he asked this earlier. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It was it was for Robert, but. Uh, <laughs> No, then I, 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 I don't think yeah. I can answer any of Ian's questions that were directed. For well, Robert. no, this is. But the, I, I think I think this <laughs> might might be one you can you can get to. Um, is there any work on uh, web cameras uh, sending high resolution uh, images down the pipe and enhancing them? Uh, can we also get an AMD version of RTX Voice? Um. So, uh, you know, the typical answer I have to give in these scenarios is we're not ready to announce any unannounced products that may or may not be uh, in, our, in our plans. So I, I can't confirm uh, or deny if we're working on anything like that. Uh, what I will share with you is uh, clearly you probably pick up some echo in the background of, uh, of me talking right now. And so does everybody else on the other end of every meeting that I have. And uh, Robert's mic didn't sound that great either. Um, so we clearly need a solution for AMD. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll say that. And then the other thing I'll say is uh, the FSR algorithm, um, uh, being a spatial algorithm, has has given us a lot of opportunity. We, we've capitalized on some of that opportunity with Radeon Super Resolution that we introduced at CES. Uh, but there are other opportunities as well beyond just uh, rendering and how we've implemented that algorithm in a rendering environment. And um, that could lend itself to image processing and improve improving uh, image processing through upscaling. Um, it, but all I could say is that it could lend itself to that at this time. I can't, I'm not ready to confirm or deny whether or not we're working on any, uh, either of those two products. Well, uh, a friend of the friend of the show, VC Jester, gave us five dollars super chat. Thank you so much. Said uh, Frank, I'll buy you a new mic if you can get Lisa Sue on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a pretty good mic. The issue is that I'm in this like uh, echo chamber of my office, which has no sound dampening, no carpet, no rug, nothing. It's just a, a big hollow den. Um, so. If you can, if you're, if you're willing to outfit my entire room with sound dampening material, then I'll make that happen. But uh, <laughs> a mic is too cheap, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> hey, uh, so I, I, oh, go ahead, Brad. I actually want to talk about Radeon Super Resolution a little bit more. Uh, so that's obviously building off the back of Fidelity FX Super Resolution, which has come out the gate, you know, swinging. You guys already have 40 plus games it's integrated in. Uh, the highlight feature of Radeon Super Resolution is that it'll work with virtually every game you can run if you're an AMD owner. But Fidelity FX Super Resolution has to be baked in by the game developers. That has a couple other advantages. I was just uh, wondering if you think they both will, can, like, will Fidelity FX Super Resolution kind of be strangled in the crib because of Radeon Super Resolution, or do you think it will continue to be adopted at the pace that it has? No, I, we expect, and we're seeing it adopted very rapidly, and the momentum continuing. Um, Right uh, over the holidays, we announced that we have 70 titles now, both in market. Oh. We have about 45 to 50 titles in market and another 20 to 25 or so that are committed for the first half of 2022. And that's just what we've announced, right? You know, by the time we announce something, you know that there's more that we haven't announced yet, right? So just count on there being more titles coming, uh, you know it's probably not going to be uh, out of the realm of reason for us to hit a hundred titles this year. Um, that would be probably uh, a, a probable case. Um, the benefit to FSR is because it's built into the game, you really get the best upscale output coming out of that for a spatial algorithm, right? We know that there's other algorithms that give you higher quality, but for a spatial algorithm, because you put it in the middle of the rendering pipeline, you're upscaling exactly what you want to be upscaled and you're not upscaling everything you don't want to be upscaled, which may be some graphics in the foreground, for example, your HUD, your chat, your text, all that kind of stuff. That just gets raw upscaled with RSR and it doesn't with FSR. Um, so if you're a game developer, you say to yourself, wow, FSR is very simple to implement. I could put it exactly where I want it to be and the quality uh, is, the, the best quality it has to offer can be preserved. And it works across everything. It works across AMD. It works across our competitors' solutions. It works on APUs or you know mobile CPUs. Um, and it works on uh, desktop graphics, mobile graphics. It works on Xbox. So RSR, while we love it, of course, because it's an AMD-only solution because it's built into our driver, 
it doesn't work across all of those other products. So the game industry is very, very motivated to continue to adopt FSR and integrate it. And they're not looking at RSR as a replacement in any way. Okay. Gordon, I interrupted you. No, it's all right. Uh, hey, Frank, I saw, so I, I want to talk about um, a trend that I, I saw over, you know, uh, the last year, AMD really had phenomenal amount of, of gaming laptop wins. Uh, nothing I've ever seen like, before, but I noticed most of the gaming laptops didn't get the highest wattage um, GeForce cards, and and I know that's that's of course you know you would say by Radeon, but I'm wondering why a lot of those vendors didn't really push high TGP, the highest end TGP parts, with when combined with Ryzen. When I felt like it felt like there was way more. Um, you know, left, there was way more of a cooling budget left in those laptops because generally I felt, you know, Ryzen uh, 5000 ran pretty cool in laptops. I could just judge that by fan. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any insight into why we didn't see the 150, 165 watt TGP parts in, in most of the, the gaming laptops for Ryzen and whether that might change this year. Yeah. So for, for, for those in the audience that don't know, I, I was on the OEM side for you know, 20 plus years, uh, you know, doing Alienware and XPS notebooks for Dell. Um, so I know a lot about notebook planning cycles, uh, probably too much. Uh, so the challenge has been that it's not too different than what happened with Radeon, as we talked about a year ago and two years ago. Um, AMD surprised the market with our uh, 4,000 series and our 5,000 series mobile APUs, CPUs. Um, And it takes years to plan a notebook, especially one from the ground up. And even after you plan your portfolio, you have resource constraints. So think of it this way. Uh, You you have 100 engineers and they can build you five laptops as an OEM and an ODM. You have two, right? You have OEMs, which are your Dell, your Lenovo, so on and so forth. And then you have behind the OEM, a development partner that in most cases does a lot of the actual raw engineering for these laptops uh, under the supervision and guidance of the OEM. So you have resource resource constraints across the entire value chain there. Um, Can the OEM handle it? And can the ODM handle it? Well, in an Intel plus NVIDIA only uh, gaming dominated laptop world, you planned your resources accordingly. And you said, all five of my notebooks with my hundred engineers are going to be this combination of Intel and NVIDIA. Well, out of nowhere comes AMD Ryzen with this incredible CPU. And people are honestly trying to scramble and figure out how do I take these five laptops and these hundred engineers and suddenly get them to go build me seven laptops or 10 laptops, but I've only got hundred engineers. Maybe I can grow to 120 engineers, but even if you wanted to grow to 500 engineers, they're, they're not out there. They don't exist. We have a resource uh, limitation in the entire industry. We can't hire engineers as fast as we're trying to as an entire industry. So it's just a matter of that us coming to market uh, surprising folks with an incredible CPU that was outperforming everything that was out there. And then honestly, having a laptop portfolio that was already planned, already resourced, already being developed. And a lot of that planning was done 24 or 18 months before you ever see that laptop hit shelves. That's when the planning and the resource locking and everything is done. And then they're trying to scramble to figure out how do I get AMD in there? Oh, then by the way, you know, it's AMD, like, I mean, let's be honest, right? Those of you that have been following this for a while, it's AMD. Are people going to really adopt it? Is it really as good as we think it's going to be? Um, they're a value brand back then. Now we're a premium brand, but back then we were a value brand. So as they're doing their planning, they're trying to make the smartest decisions they possibly can for their business because they have those resource constraints. So they're putting what at the time was perceived to be a value branded CPU in with value graphics. And they thought that, you know, other brands would be the only ones that would be able to sell at the ultra high end. The brand, the OEMs and the ODMs are partnered with us and bet the other way and put our CPUs with the highest end graphics. They're the ones who did the best over the last year, year and a half. But I don't blame them. I, I would have made the same decisions if I were in their shoes because I've been in those situations. It's hard to be a notebook product planner uh, and product manager at these companies. So that's the reality of the situation now. 
you're going to see pretty, and you did, I think, through the second half of last year, you saw a lot more Ryzen with high-powered uh, NVIDIA graphics and now with Radeon graphics. You're, you're going to pretty much see uh, a 50-50 mix, if not even more in favor of AMD, just because we, we've done so well and we've proven ourselves so well with Ryzen and mobile. And I just have a quick follow-up there because I, 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 you're saying definitely there was a resource issue and planning. I, I understand all that, but sometimes I felt like there was a segmentation issue because it's like, you know, I'm not going to, I, I'm, my highest margin product is going to be Core i9 with a top end GeForce. I don't want to also, I don't want to have my cheaper, you know, lower cost Ryzen based one, frankly, be as fast as, as the, the, my top-end Core i9 uh, GeForce product. So I almost felt like we're not, we'll put a 130-watt TGB part instead of the 160 because, you know, people, they're, we want to push them to the, 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 the laptop that makes us the most money. I'm just wondering. But all, that, all that plays into the resourcing, Gordon. It really does because even once you design the carcass, which is a whole set of engineering resources that are required, the carcass being the motherboard and the mechanical substructure of the laptop, then you start just plugging parts in. You think, oh, it's what's the difference between this SKU and that SKU and the other SKU? You have to validate all of that. You have to have every SKU combination is completely validated. And then keep in mind, CPUs and GPUs are soldered onto the motherboards. So that's a whole SKU. And every one of those SKUs adds complexity into the portfolio. You have to forecast it. You have to store service parts. You have to train your tech support team for it. So you have all this complexity that all these teams are trying to manage with constrained resources and what they're trying to do is reduce their complexity as much as possible so that they can offer the market as much as what they can. And to your point, you're right. There was some segmentation there because AMD perceived as a value brand at the time. And it's just so hard to like remember where AMD was three years ago to where we are right now, right? Huge difference. Just, huge difference. Try to remember three years ago, we were in Chromebooks, you know, and these $400, $500 laptops. You couldn't find an AMD Ryzen CPU in a laptop over $1,000 three years ago. And we've come immensely far. I mean, it's just incredible how far we've come. But all those resource constraints, it forces them to go into and say, okay, I can only validate, let's say, three motherboards of these five laptops that are going to be AMD-based. They're a value brand. I should probably put them in the lower price point products uh, versus taking this huge risk, putting them at the high end. So it's very honestly, it's quite simply that it's not anything more complicated than that. It's everybody has finite resources and everyone's really trying to make the best decisions they can. And uh, hindsight's 2020 for a lot of these folks, but they're, they're writing the wrongs. I mean, we announced 200 premium laptop designs at CES. That's pretty much the whole market is going to be by and large covered outside of a few exclusives here and there. And then we have our exclusives. Our competitors have their exclusives, which is very normal. But we don't have that conversation anymore. That conversation we were struggling with three years ago, of you should have sort us at the high end and this, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Everyone's got it. And uh, they're, they've either you know reduced their SKU count on some of the other competitive offerings, or they've been able to scale up their resources, or they're doing motherboard leverage in, in different ways. Um, so there's, it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> well, I find, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Adam. I just had a couple quick questions from the chat before we uh, before we get out of here, if that's okay. Yeah, um, let me ask my question yeah, yeah, first. No, go then. for it. Go for it. Uh, so, one of the uh, things I find really interesting involving laptops, everything in general, is for a long time, as you know, uh, on the desktops at least, AMD didn't have the best advantage with software, didn't have the best reputation with software. But I think you guys have really stepped up and corrected that over the last few years. I think that you guys are actually uh, starting to set the tone in a lot of ways with uh, smart access memory. We saw Intel and NVIDIA follow along after that with PCIe resizable bar. Uh, smart shift, I think, was huge for you guys last year, which is part of the reason why they did start seeing the change in adoption. Uh, and you guys announced next generation smart shift stuff, which works Radeon, GPU, Ryzen, CPU working together in tandem. Uh, you've got a couple new technologies coming out this, this year. Uh, smart shift mm-hmm. Max, which... It says offers up to a two times increase in performance in some scenarios. Uh, and there's also a battery version that, you know, optimizes around battery life. Is it really a two X increase in performance? That's, that's a pretty sizable claim. That's smart is, is it going to, yeah. Is it, is that going to be but, as significant as smart shift and smart access memory were? Um, 
man. <laughs> yeah, is it real? Yeah, it's absolutely real. We would never lie, and certainly yeah. not intentionally in, in the benchmarks that we showed. Is it practical that you're going to get a two up, uh, uh, two X uplift on most of your titles with SmartShift? No, that's not practical. Uh, for I, how I, honest, but um, it's better. It's SmartShift 2.0, you know. But uh, we're using the SmartShift brand for other things like uh, the, the eco technology, which shifts between your APUs graphics and your DGPUs graphics. Um, so rather than just calling it 2.0 and then confusing everybody around that and eco. Uh, we, we went with Max. Uh, I don't know if there'll ever be what's better than Max now. I don't know. We're, I hope it's not ultra. It's not so <laughs> overused, but Max we'll figure that out. Yeah, right. We'll figure <laughs> that out later. But, um, but yeah, it's just a better version. And what it does is smart shift. And the joke I say is that it's smart, but it, it wasn't smart enough. Um, <laughs> it shifted the TDP a little bit blindly in that it said, Oh, a game is running. Let me shift the TDP very rapidly over to the GPU. Oh, uh, a workload that's more CPU dependent. Let me shift it to the CPU. But in some cases, workloads and applications get bottlenecked if you shift away from the CPU too much or you shift away. And we weren't really monitoring those bottlenecks. And we weren't kind of bilaterally shifting back and forth very rapidly to find the sweet spot. So that's why some applications weren't getting any benefit because we were kind of choking them. And then other ben- other applications um, were getting X amount of benefit and we were able to extract Y from it because we're smarter now, which is the pun, we're smarter <laughs> um, with SmartShift Max and we're able to uh, in, not go guardrail to guardrail on how we're doing the TDP shifting. It's, it's more precise and uh, it's just more refined. And everything we learned out of SmartShift 1.0, we built it into 2.0 and, and that's the benefit we're getting out of it. Well, that be thank exclusive? you for the compliments on the software, by the way. Uh, you know, we're... We had a really rough time with drivers in the past, and we've made a, a commitment about a year and a half, two years ago, that we were going to put stability and reliability first in, in our driver decisions. And uh, it slowed down the introduction of new features in terms of quantity of new features, uh, but it's given us the ability to introduce higher quality features um, that have more of an impact into the user experience. And the driver package has been really, really stable. And we, I think we've done a fair job of when customers have escalated issues to us, we've really tried to respond to what those issues are uh, that they've, they've escalated to us. I mean, that's a commitment and we're, it's not easy. Software is, is so hard, um, but we're trying. We're trying really hard and we appreciate the team's feedback, though. yours and as well as our end customers, because that's what keeps us honest and keeps us focused on the right priorities. Everyday quality of life beats quantity of features. Uh do smart, these new smart shift modes, will they be exclusive to the new laptops coming out or will they get imported back to some of the existing smart shift laptops? Uh, the challenge with these features is they're more than just software. They're really yeah. developed and designed in at a, at a low level um, into the actual chips themselves. So we've worked with Robert's team and then uh, Laura and Scott's teams on the graphics side and the software team. Um, you can't just like patch these things. It, it does. It's not that simple, unfortunately. Uh, I, I mean, I think we we do a pretty good job of trying to give backwards compatibility everywhere we can. You know, FSR, AM4, all these different things. It's not possible on most of these things. Like smart access graphics, you have to have a MUX in there. The MUX has to be designed a certain way so that it interfaces with the motherboard, the BIOS, and everything, so that we can software control it. So if it's not designed that specific way, we can't control it through uh, smart access graphics. So it's not like we can just patch that onto other MUX designs. Uh, SmartShift Max, the same thing as SmartShift. It was designed into the Ryzen 6000 series CPUs, like SmartShift was into the, into the 5000. Um, so we can't, like, you can't just okay. software patch it. Um, it totally makes smart sense. A- I just wasn't clear, so I wanted to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, smart access memory, though, that one will continue to scale with PCI Express. We actually are getting a little bit, it was so negligible, it was like 1% to 2%, but we're getting better uplift out of PCI 4 now that we moved to that with smart access memory. We didn't talk about it at the show because it was like, who's gonna, who cares about 1% <laughs> to 2%? But um, folks that move over to PCI Gen 4 platform will get a little bit better uplift out of uh, smart access memory as a result. Thank you. Adam, sorry uh, to yeah, you. A couple quick ones. I, I know there's a ton of questions out there. Yeah, Thank rap, you, everybody. Rapid fire, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapid, rapid fire. fire. <laughs> uh, can't get to all of them, but I, I do have a couple really good ones. Uh, Austin23 put on Discord, will AMD be putting out an updated Radeon software feature request survey this year? Uh, 
We will now. <laughs> uh, okay, then you um, did it. You did it, Internet. You did it. <laughs> um, you write that one down. <clears throat> Nocturnal 101 Ravenous gave us $5 super chat. Thank you so much. Said any news on AMD with PCIe support uh, supporting X or I'm sorry, CXL for multi GPU scaling for gaming? Uh, not likely. Okay. Uh, uh, Peter Jansen had asked, uh, can you explain if license deals block the open sourcing of the firmware for graphics cards? Uh, they're a fan of Linux and uh, wondering about getting stuff over there. The firmware of the graphics card um, being open sourced. I mean, I always get an open source question when I'm here with you guys. Uh, I think the driver now is we have it out there as an open source driver, but uh, I don't think we have plans to make the firmware on it open source um, when we make open source decisions, it's typically to help drive industry adoption and to help kind of, you know, we have our reasons for why we do what we do under the Fidelity Effects brand of all these tools and everything that are out there. Uh, I'd have to have, a, I'd have to have like, hear some good arguments as to why we should go about and do that and why that would be good overall for the entire industry. Um, and we'd have to weigh, I don't know. I'd, I'd, a lot, I'd have to think about that a lot more and have some conversations with folks on that one. I, but I don't think that's in our plans right now that I know of. Okay. Uh, and last one, uh, in internal duo, a, uh, gave us $10, uh, or 10 euro super chat. Thank you. Said, uh, given the recent controversy of vendor locking of pro products to specific vendors, is this something AMD will expand to consumer products, especially when there's a focus industry wide on reducing e-waste? What does he mean by that question? Uh, I, I, I asked for a, a follow-up. They said there's been some chatter about Ryzen Pro products being vendor-locked uh, behind uh, companies like Dell, meaning you can't reuse components salvaged from broken PCs. It was their follow-up. Hmm. Um, I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, but if, if he wants, hit me up on Twitter with the question at Azor Frank, and uh, I'll follow up on it. I'll ask the team. Uh, uh, somebody in chat saying he's referring to PSB. I don't know. Okay. Right. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. I don't know, but I will. I will follow up on it. I, I, if you hit me up on with the question, whoever asked it, um, I will. I'll follow up on it. Okay. Awesome. All right, guys. I, I really have to run. I'm sorry. No, but thank you. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank we you for the opportunity. Definitely. We, you know, I could do this all day with you, but we got to go. Check back net. Actually, check back tomorrow for your fix of PC talk on the full nerd. For audio listeners, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and please do leave a review every time you do. Frank Azor responds to your Twitter request. That's, uh, not, that's, uh, he'll do that anyway. Saying questions and comments to the full nerd at PCworld.com. Thanks for coming. I'm Gordon Young with Brad Charkas. Adios. Frank Azor. Bye guys. Thank you. Robert Halleck, who has left, I'll say bye for him. Bye, Internet. And Ann Patrick Murray's going to hit the house. Thank you so much uh, for being here, Frank. Uh, thanks for all your great questions. We'll see you later. Bye.